following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Excuse me, sorry. As you can tell, I've been a little sick this week. <clears throat> so that made for uh, difficulty studying which means a really long sermon. So you're welcome. <laughs> uh, if you turn with me to Mark chapter 3, uh, we're going to look at a sizable chunk this morning, verses 20 to 35, and that's page 838 in the Pew Bible, if that's helpful to you, unless you have the wrong Pew Bible, and then it probably won't be. So we're returning with Jesus and his apostles to Capernaum, um, to his base of operations in the region of Galilee. Uh, and we're going to look at Jesus' interactions with three different groups in this passage in hopes to find maybe our place among one of them. So let's look at the passage together. Mark chapter 3, start at verse 20, and then we'll pray together. Then he went home, Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they came out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. (coughs) Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, Your mother and brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. Father, good morning. We ask, Lord, do you speak to us through your Holy Spirit, regardless of the things that I say. May your Spirit speak to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would be the interpreter of your word this morning, that uh, the message that you have here in your word would reach our hearts and change our lives so that we would be more like you that we would come to know you or know you better as a result of our time here this morning. 
We give you this time for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> so, last week, you remember, we talked about Jesus' ministry by the sea. Um, actually, in the sea, in a boat, which is where a lot of good ministry happens. Just saying. Well, he also is not just on the sea, but also in the mountains, where he called the 12 apostles to himself. Again, mountains, a great place for ministry. Well, now Jesus is returning home, home to Capernaum. Remember, we have talked about um, the city of Capernaum, the size of Shakurwa village. It was um, uh, Jesus' base of operations in the region. And here we get back to Capernaum, and the crowds gather again. Uh, they found him, and they crowded in on him with all their sick and all their lame in need of healing, so much so that it couldn't even eat. Well, there's um, so much to admire, I think, about the ministry of Jesus, not just in the results of it, because you can see his changed history. He's the most influential person that ever lived, and any historian will tell you that. But there is so much to admire about how Jesus went about ministry. Jesus didn't give speeches from ivory towers and, or ornate pulpits, not even a fancy music stand with a cup holder. He ministered among the people, among the people. His impact was made by contact. You could, that's like a bumper sticker, I guess. His impact was so great that his popularity had become a problem. It's a, when you are so good at your job that your job does not allow you to do your job anymore, that's, that can be problematic. And that's... Um, that's what his family thought. His family thought he's, he's lost it. He can't take care of himself anymore. And what we're going to look at here um, is, a, is a classic uh, apology referred to as Lewis's trilemma. Right? Write this down so you can impress your friends. Uh, Lewis's trilemma. That's uh, C.S. Lewis. You've heard of him, maybe not heard of his trilemma. No bumper stickers about that, right? I bet there are a number of you who have heard the expression uh, Lord, lunatic, or liar, right? Uh, so you've heard that before. That is Lewis's trilemma. And if you were from Chicago, you would uh, change it, uh, forgive my accent, you would say he's either mad, bad, or gad. <laughs> Thank you for your grace. <clears throat> well, this argument basically says that Jesus was either mad, he's a lunatic uh, for his claims, or that he was bad, he's a liar, just deceiving people, or that he is, in fact, Lord and God. Now, his family here in verse 20, one of the groups that we look at this morning, thought that he was mad. They thought he had lost his mind. Verse 20 says, then he went home, 
and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Now, the word Mark used, went out to seize him, that's not just like, hey, hey, Jesus, why don't you take a break? Come on, let's, let's go fish for real now. Just you need to give it a, come on with us. This is another word Mark used. This is the same word that we would use for arresting a criminal. They want to grab him by force and drag him away from the crowds and hide him from them because he could not take care of himself anymore. It's just he's lost it. <clears throat> he was so intent on his idea, this idea of preaching and casting out demons. He's so whipped up in this uh, religious zeal that he's lost his grip on reality. He can't even feed himself anymore. We need to go get him. Go take care of him. Well, we're, we're uh, live streaming, so I can't make any comments about my own family and how sometimes... <laughs> Uh, you know, ministry's getting a little much. How about you take it easy, right? Maybe, maybe you don't need to move all the way to New Hampshire. Maybe you can come come back home. Well, it's clear at this point. This is where that parallel ends. This is clear at this point that Jesus' own family did not believe him. They did not believe he was the Son of God. Right? Uh, their assertion was that he is a lunatic. He's lost it. His brothers did not believe in him. And their assertion has been echoed by many who refuse to believe that Jesus is Lord. He's just a nutcase, you know. And the reaction of Jesus' family was that he was mad. That's bad news for them. But the accusation of the scribes was not that he was mad, but that he was bad. Not a lunatic. He is a liar. Verse 22 says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. Now, these are not just incidental scribes who happened to be in town that day. These were scribes sent from Jerusalem. This was a delegation sent from Jerusalem, which is the religious capital of the world. Right? That's where the temple is. That's where the sacrifices are made. That's where... Uh, the Mosaic Covenant of, of uh, temple worship, that all happens in Jerusalem. And these guys were, were the experts sent to Capernaum to condemn Jesus. They're not there to investigate. They're not there on a fact-finding mission. They're there to condemn him, to stop him, to discredit him so that people would reject him and forget about him. That's, they just wanted peace. Put things back the way they used to be. Get rid of this fellow. So how do you do that? You've got tens of thousands of people coming to see Jesus, and they see the miracles, and they're not denying the, the miracles. You can't. Lame people are walking, right? Withered hands, unwithered, blind, receive their sight. The only way you can discredit that is to question the power. Jesus' power is coming through the Holy Spirit, right? And they say, wrong it's not the holy spirit it's not the holy ghost it's a different kind of ghost this is from the devil right that's the only way that you can tip the scale against him right they couldn't discredit or deny the miracles 
that everybody had seen. So they went after the power behind the miracles. And if you have, you have to admit that if you can convince people that people that are seeking God, that their teacher is Satan, it could be a real turnoff, <laughs> right? There's the end of the movement. Hey, guys, guess what? This miracle worker that you've been following around is really the devil. Well, I don't want anything to do with him. So I'll go back home, back to temple, back to the way things were. So what are the scribes trying to do? They're trying to wrest control of the people back away from Jesus and back to them, to the way things used to be. They wanted spiritual control of the populace. And Jesus is a brilliant apologist. That's not that he's apologizing and say he's sorry, but he's defending uh, himself, his position. That's Lewis's apology of Lewis's uh, trilemma. Is an, it's not, I'm sorry. It's a defense of the faith. So when I use that word, that's what I mean. So Jesus, the brilliant apologist, um, showed them uh, as Mr. Spock would say, your argument is illogical. Verse 23, and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand, meaning like a family, not a building. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand by his coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And what the scribes are suggesting is that Jesus is a general in the civil war going on within the kingdom of darkness and that Jesus somehow is leading a coup Again, Satan, right? Casting out Satan's own agents who are trying to do what Satan wants. This does not make any sense. It's illogical. Jesus' response to their illogical claim is that a kingdom divided, a house divided, a family divided cannot stand. And if that is truly what is happening, then the power of Satan has come to an end. He can no longer stand. But that's clearly not the case, uh, as was evidenced by all the demonic activity that was around them and even around us today shows still that their argument was illogical. And Jesus continues his logical response to their illogical claim with the parable about a strong man. Now, I admit, I read this passage 557,000 times and never understood what Jesus was talking about with a strong man. Who is this strong man? What do you mean he can't? What tie him up? I don't get it. So I'll just move on. Don't think about it. Keep going, right? Not, not always a great idea. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. The trouble is it's so simple. That's why I didn't get it. Satan is the strong man. In this picture, I think that's probably the problem that I had. Um, Jesus attributing strength to Satan. But Satan is, in fact, strong, stronger than us. So don't mess around. 
Satan is a strong man in this picture, and Jesus is the only one who is stronger, strong enough to bind him, to tie him up, right? By casting out demons, he's, Jesus is proving that he is not bad, that he is not in league with Satan, but that he is more powerful and opposed to Satan. He is able to bind Satan and plunder his house, thus nullifying the scribe's argument that Jesus was working under Satan's power. So think about this picture of a strong man's house. What possessions do you think it is that Jesus came to plunder from the strong man? It's not his TV. It's people. It's the souls of the lost. Jesus came to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. And the goods that are in this strong man's house are people. Better take that into account. Mankind, you and me, men and women, were created by God for a relationship with God. But we willfully turned our backs on God and willingly entered the house of Satan to be held captive by him. Those goods who belong to the strong man are there voluntarily. They are not our enemies. They are captives. And in our compassion, we should reach out to them with the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to rescue them. To rescue us. So sorry, scribes, you're wrong. He's not bad. He's not a liar. He is the ultimate good. He is the ultimate truth. We live in a world that say there is no absolute truth. Also illogical. Jesus himself is the truth. Have you ever played a chess? You ever played against Sam, my son? <laughs> if you had, maybe you have experienced getting down to just your king, and no queen, and no rooks, and no pawns left anymore. All you can do is just slide one square back and forth, try to avoid a checkmate, right? just trying to avoid getting pinned down. That is where Satan is. Satan is in check. And the day is coming where the Lord Jesus Christ will put him in checkmate and put an end to his kingdom. He's only moving around one square at a time. But don't forget that one square at a time can still take out a bishop or a pawn or a rook. After exposing all the flaws and the accusations of the scribe, Jesus gave them an eternal warning, another piece of scripture that has brought a lot of questions to a lot of people over the years. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. These are powerful words. Never has forgiveness. 
when the one who lived and died to purchase forgiveness says someone who has done this never has forgiveness, we should pay attention. Guilty of an eternal sin, a sin whose consequences are eternal, not something to play around with. These are incredibly powerful and honestly incredibly troubling statements. They've left a lot of people wondering what they mean and if they've actually committed this sin without knowing it or not on purpose, I slipped and blasphemed the Holy Spirit and now I'm condemned. Wondering if forgiveness is no longer available to them. That's a terrible place to be. But I will say, this is not a sin that you can commit by accident. This is not a whoops, I blasphemed the Holy Spirit and now I'm condemned to eternal destruction. It does not work that way. So take a breath. Verse 30 is the key that unlocks this mystery. Verse 30 says, For they were saying, Jesus has an unclean spirit. That is a demon, right? The scribes were on the verge of committing the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin, by assigning the actions of God to Satan, saying that the work of the Holy Spirit was really the work of the devil and his agents. These scribes, these are professional Bible teachers, steeped in the Old Testament, know it backwards and forwards. They had to memorize the first five books of the Bible by the time they were 12. These guys should know what they're doing. They should know better. They should have known what to look for in Messiah instead of trying to make a case against him. And they rejected him. And that's the key. There is no forgiveness for those who reject God's only mean of providing forgiveness. Jesus Christ himself. How else can anyone be forgiven? There is no other way. We only have forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. And when we reject that only means of forgiveness, we are guilty. These scribes were on the verge of constantly rejecting the saving power of God. They were on the verge of eternally condemning themselves. J.D. Grasmick wrote in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, Jesus declared all the sins and blasphemies, that's derogatory words against God, Jesus declared all the sins and blasphemies of men are open to God's gracious forgiveness with one exception, blasphemies against the Holy Spirit. In light of the context, this refers to an attitude, not an isolated act or utterance, a whoops moment, but an attitude of defiant hostility toward God that rejects his saving power toward man, expressed in the spirit-empowered person and work of Jesus. It is one's preference for darkness, even though he has been exposed to light. Such a persistent attitude of willful unbelief can harden into a condition in which repentance and forgiveness, both mediated by God's Spirit, become impossible. This person is in the grasp of an eternal sin, the ultimate sin because it remains forever unforgiven. Judas Iscariot proved these words. 
Those that reject Jesus, think he's mad, think he's a lunatic, or declare that he is bad, that he's a liar. Those people are in danger of committing this sin just as the scribes were. That's the two groups of people. Those that think Jesus is mad and those that think that Jesus is bad. And there's a third group of people on the scene that we haven't talked about which display the third possibility in Lewis's trilemma. Look at verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around them, around him, and he said to them, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The third group those that do not reject Jesus as a lunatic or a liar. They don't believe that he is mad or that he is bad. The third group are those that call on Jesus as Lord. They who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not rejecting his earthly family, saying, Mary, I don't know you anymore. James, Joseph, Joseph, I don't know you guys. Get away from me. That's not what he's doing here. That's very important to understand. Because uh, some of them did eventually come to faith. Some of them authored books of scripture. The book of James, Jesus' half-brother. Right? Mary did not desert him, but was there at the cross. Don't forget. Jesus is not rejecting his family. He's not saying also that you can no longer, if you're going to relate to me, you can no longer relate to your relatives. Your relations, you cannot relate to anymore. That's not what he's saying. There is a cost in following Jesus, and that may very well happen, that members of our families may reject us because of our faith in Christ. But he's not saying that you have to do that. What he is teaching is that God's will and God's work cannot be superseded by anyone. And that Jesus' true family are those that come to him in faith. What I mean is your devotion to your family cannot come before your devotion to the Lord Jesus. That's a difficult thing to grasp and worthy of an entire sermon series, I think. There is a cost to following Jesus. And sometimes it means putting Christ before your kids. Putting Christ before your parents or your siblings. Jesus' true family are those who come to him in faith. And that is the family that is called the church. Not the building where we meet, but the people who gather here. I'll conclude with a warning to you that have gathered here today or are within the sound of my voice through the miracle of modern technology. I'll warn you with this, uh, echoing the words of Alistair Begg. We are not 
merely passive readers of this text. We must land somewhere. We are in one of these three groups. We must answer the question, who is Jesus? Is he a madman? Is he a liar? Or is he Lord? There are no other options. There are plenty of people that say, well, when you ask them, tell me, what do you think about Jesus? They say, oh, he's a great guy. Wonderful teacher of morality. Teach you good things. But he's not really the son of God. Come on. That's all kind of made up. Now I will quote C.S. Lewis and his trilemma. Are you ready? By the way, you can read the book. This is written in Mere Christianity. I want to see your heads down writing the title of that book. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I'll end with this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. That's one of my favorite expressions. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and claim him as Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was, either a lunat- he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the fact that he was and is God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I pray that we would not just say amen to this word with our lips, but we would say the amen in our heart. That no one here in this room or in the sound of my voice would end this day without calling on Jesus as Lord. And was reminded of uh, reminded the men yesterday morning at breakfast. We much pre- we much pre- must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. There is no day that passes where we should not call out that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, I pray if there is anyone here who has never called on you as Lord, that they would accept your offer of forgiveness accept the truth you died on the cross in their place because of their sin you love them so much but that you did not stay dead but rose again 
so that we might have a place in your eternal kingdom by faith. Father, we are all in one of these three groups. I pray that we would all be in the group that belongs to you. For we do love you, Lord. We give you permission to mess up our lives for your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.